Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we can turn our attention to your word. And we do pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding here. Uh, There are some challenging truths in this text of Scripture about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And we don't need to be distracted. Our minds need to be on him. So please calm our spirits and direct our hearts to our Savior. We love you. We trust this time of worship into your hands and ask God that you would do a mighty work in our midst. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Students who are preparing for college courses will learn what the term prerequisite is. You know what that word means, prerequisite? So you can't take accounting 201 until you take accounting 101. Uh, 101 is required for 201. This must come before this. That's the meaning of prerequisite. And it occurred to me that as we're going through this material in Hebrews on priests and temples and sacrifices and covenants, that there is a prerequisite for us as we begin to engage all of this material with the kind of seriousness that it deserves. And if we don't have this prerequisite, we won't appreciate what Jesus has come to do and all he is for us. And the prerequisite is this. There must be a true sense of our sin and the judgment that we deserve from a holy God. That's the prerequisite that is required as we come to a text of Scripture like this. Otherwise, it won't make a whole lot of sense. It won't seem as weighty as it needs to be. We won't be able to approach it with the kind of seriousness that this text deserves. And I understand that even me saying that, a true sense of our sin, true sense of our sin, the judgment we deserve from a holy God, that kind of language is not very modern, is it? It's not very current. It's not very trendy. You don't hear that kind of thing out there, do you? Not out there in the world. That's just not language that we are drawn to hear from all the sources of information that we get. There's never so much as even a peep from any news source, even your solid conservative news that you listen to. There is not a peep of sin, righteousness, Holy God, judgment, none of that, is there? You're not going to find that in your favorite primetime programming. Nothing even close. Not on your standard social media news feed. Not from the talking heads on TV. Not from the guys on the radio. The worldview that's taught in our schools gives no place to God. He is not needed to make sense of our world. He isn't needed for education. He isn't needed at all. He's not needed. We're doing just fine without you, thank you. No God necessary here. And if there is no God, no God worth paying attention to, that means there is no sin. There is no right and wrong. There's no impending judgment. And if none of those things exist, then there's no need for a Savior. So if we come to a text like this with our ears 
shaped by what we hear out there in the world. All of this is going to seem light and fluffy, and we don't know why we're even talking about this stuff. It's like a foreign language because we don't hear this stuff out in the world at all where we get all the rest of our news. It's like somebody just telling you a fairy tale here. You get it one year at church, and then you get back out there, back to the, to the real life. But if you approach this text right here with the prerequisite sense of your sin, that you are a needy sinner, and that there is a God out there that desires to meet your need, your greatest need, oh, this text is beautiful. We've separated ourselves from God as human beings, but he was not willing to leave us on our own. That's the kind of God that we have. He's a provider. Isn't that what Jireh means that we just heard a minute ago? The God who provides? Do we believe that? And if he's a God who provides, that means I'm a person with a real need. I'm needy. God's not. I am. And he delights to meet my need, which is primarily my sin. I got to believe that when I come to a text like this talking about priests. Priest? I mean, that just sounds foreign. Heaven? How can I get there? Holiness? How can that be? Christ. That's how it can be. So I hope this morning that you'll have the prerequisite knowledge in your heart. Otherwise, none of this is going to make a whole lot of sense. And if it's, you've come here this morning and that prerequisite knowledge is not currently there, I hope that God will bless you with it to see that you really are a sinner that explains what's going on inside of you that's all messed up and broken. It explains what you see out there in the world that's all messed up and broken. God has come to set it straight. And he's done so in the person of Jesus Christ. This theme of prerequisite knowledge reminds me of what is probably the most famous sermon that's ever preached on American soil. It was by a man named Jonathan Edwards. You may have heard of it. Probably not his best sermon, but the most famous one. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you heard of it before? Revival was breaking out in New England communities in 1741. It was out there in other towns, but the town of Enfield had not experienced it yet. And so Edwards was invited to come in and preach in hopes that the fire of revival might spread to this place. And the text that he opened up with was Deuteronomy 32, 35. The text is only a few words. It is, their foot shall slide in due time. And so here these people show up. They're careless. They don't really care. Edwards begins to preach. And they start to get a sense of their sin. Because what that text is talking about, in due time, God will bring his judgment. And they didn't really care at the moment. But somewhere in the middle of that sermon, they cared. People began to wail and cry out to God for mercy because they now believed that they had sin truly and that God was the provider for their sin problem. 
They received the warning that Edwards gave about their waywardness, and they began to delight in Christ. They began to value Jesus because they began to see the need that they had. Again, this text of Scripture here won't make a whole lot of sense, and we won't value Jesus unless we really see that we have a need. He's not just a friend that comes alongside of us to hold our hand in difficult times. He is our priest who came to offer up his blood to cleanse us. That's who he is. Judgment is coming, but mercy is here now. Will you look to Christ? Let's look together at what Jesus has done for us here, in, starting in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. And I'm going to read through the end of the next chapter, 8, 13. Hopefully you have a Bible. If not, grab one in the back of the pew. I don't know if it's going to be on the screen today. I don't think I put it there. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness is high priest, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that in the middle of all these words about priests and covenants and temples and blood and sacrifice, that you would show us plainly, Jesus, who our Savior is, what he has come to do, who he is for us right now. We need, desperately need, a priest like him. 
Thank you for sending Jesus to us to solve our greatest need, the one that tears down the barriers between us and you and brings us peace with a holy God. And you tell us that you will make us holy through him. We do not deserve it, but that's the kind of God that you are. You are merciful, forgiving, and gracious to sinners like us. Bless us with understanding this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look there at verse 26. Right there at the very beginning of that text that I read, we're shown a word that helps us to see that Jesus is a suitable priest. Jesus is a suitable priest. Mine says it was fitting. My translation says it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. And we use that phrase from time to time, do we not? We say things like, well, that was fitting that it happened to you. Like we understand something of who that person is. We understand something, the experiences that would be fitting for them. Like you're the crazy guy and crazy stuff is just always happening to you. And maybe you know somebody like that. So it was fitting that that would happen to him. The experience you had was suitable to who you are. And the idea here in verse 26 is that what Jesus is and what Jesus has done is suitable to your need. He is suitable. It was fitting. He's exactly the kind of priest that was required to purify a people like us. That's what it means that he was, he is fitting, or it was fitting that we have a priest like him. Because anything less than what Jesus is would not be fitting for our condition. We needed him. We didn't need just something like him. We couldn't have anything that was short of him. Because if anything short of him showed up to be our priest, we would still be in our sins. So he was suitable for us. A man with skin cancer needs something stronger, more effective than Tylenol. We get that, right? A gunshot victim doesn't need a Band-Aid. He needs something suitable, fitting for his injury. A sinner needs something a little bit stronger than a good self-help book or Dr. Phil. He needs a power that can reach into his very soul. He needs a power that can bring him into the courts of heaven. That's what he needs. And there is one remedy, and it is Jesus. Well, what is it exactly that makes him suitable for this job? The second half of verse 26 there tells us. It says that he is holy, innocent, and unstained. That's what we needed. That's what we're being told. We needed a priest who is holy, innocent, and unstained. Now, all those priests that went before Jesus, is that what they were? The Levitical priesthood that came from Aaron, came from the line of Abraham? They were not. They were blemished men. 
And the way they offered sacrifices showed that they were blemished men. And what was that? We're told that they had to first offer a sacrifice for themselves. Why? Because they were sinners. They needed cleansing too before they were able to enter into the holy places. And this went on daily. They were continual sinners. They weren't just one-time sinners. They sinned a lot more than they knew that they did, just like we do. So they needed a continual sacrifice for their own sins. And that daily sacrifice that was made was a reminder of three things to those Israelites, or should have been a reminder of three things to them. First, our condition is dire. It is desperate. We are sinners. We need these men to go in and offer up sacrifices for us continually, always. There is something wrong with me. They also should have been able to see that their priests are just as needy as they are. Not only did they need their sins cleansed, their priests needed their sins cleansed. And then they should have seen that their sacrifices just aren't finishing the job. The sacrifices weren't permanent. They weren't effective. They didn't wash them completely clean. They should have noticed all of that in the priesthood that was set up. But Hebrews here makes it clear that Jesus is different. He's different. Our condition is dire, just like theirs was. But our priest did not need to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was no sinner. He didn't need to offer one up for himself before he went into the holiest of places. No, only one sacrifice needed to be made, and that was for us. And it was once for all time. That's the kind of priest that I need. I need one who is holy, innocent, unstained. And that's what you need. And that's what God sent. That's why he is a suitable priest. He's suitable. He fits our need. And anything less than him would not have done. And God knew that. And that's why he sent his son. We're told here also that Jesus is separated from sinners and exalted in the heavens. That's the kind of priest that we need too. And I think that what he's getting at here is the place, the where of where Jesus' ministry is. Where is his ministry done? Where does it take place at? So not only is Jesus a better and suitable priest, he is currently doing his ministry in a better place. He's doing his ministry in a better place. And the beginning of chapter 8 carries that idea of place just a little bit further. There were some sacrifices under the old covenant that a priest would offer up every day as he came into the temple. So he went into the holy place often. He regularly went in there where the bread was and the lampstand and all of those things. He went into that part of the tabernacle or temple every day. But there was only one place, or there was one place that he only went one time out of the year on the Day of Atonement. It is what the Jews now call Yom Kippur. He went into the most holy place that day to offer up blood for the sins of the people. And he was not allowed in that room but for a few moments 
was not a permanent place where he stayed. He did not live there. He did not camp out there for a long time. He went in, offered the blood, did the job, and got out. He poured that blood on top of the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's all the access that the priest had. And then he had to leave that holiest of places until the same time next year. And so his access to the Holy of Holies was always restricted. But what about our priest? Look at verse 1 there in chapter 8. What does it say about him? What kind of access does he have to the holy place? Most holy place. It says, we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Our priest's access to the holy of holies is not restricted to just one day out of the year. He doesn't have to get in and get out. No, he is seated at the right hand of God. And because he is seated, this is important, he's seated because he's there permanently. The job was done. It was completed. He finished the job and then sat down there in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of the majesty on high. He didn't need to leave. He stayed in the true temple of God. It's here that we get another one of these little breadcrumbs that keep getting dropped in this book, kind of like last week where we saw how the writer unraveled the mystery of Melchizedek, and he used four verses in the Old Testament to do that in just two separate places. Just a character that was kind of hidden in the backstory, it seemed, out there in the shadows. He brings him out into the front and shows us what the ministry of Melchizedek was supposed to point us to. He pointed us to the man who was to come, the man Christ Jesus who would come according to the line that would last forever. Not the priesthood of Aaron, priesthood of the line of Melchizedek. We saw that last week. And here in verses 1 through 5, we see this writer teaching from a single verse in Exodus that the tabernacle and later the temple, that they were designed, they were built, constructed, off of the pattern that Moses was shown by God on the mountain. Look at what he says there in verse 5. He's talking about the priests and all that they did with all the lampstands and water bowls and everything. They serve a copy, these priests do, and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God saying, this is a quote, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He's telling us that when Moses went up on top of that mountain to meet with God, now we don't know how it took place, if Moses was shown pictures or if God just instructed him, whatever it was, God showed Moses something to come back down and construct the tabernacle and everything in it according to what he had seen somehow up there on the mountain that were a picture of what was in heaven. So God did not just say willy-nilly to Moses, get down there and make a tent with two rooms in it. No, everything meant something. Even the very dimensions 
of the sides of the tent, the holy place, the most holy place. You actually see this. I and mean, this is something that you could follow if you want or trace down. The breadcrumbs go further. They go into the book of Revelation. And so when heaven is described, it is the dimensions of the tabernacle. Why is that? <laughs> because the tabernacle was a copy of heavenly things. It's a perfect square. It's beautiful. God had a plan, even when Moses was up on the mountain, saying, now you're going to get up there and build stuff for earth as it is in heaven. That's what you're going to do. And so those priests, when they went in and out of the temple every day, they were serving a copy of heavenly things to depict a ministry that would come, that would actually take place in heaven. So when Jesus went into the holy of holies in heaven and offered up his blood... He walked into the real holy place, the most holy place. And all those priests that were still down there serving on the mountain, they were just serving the pattern, serving the copy of the perfect that was to come, that Jesus was going to do. Again, just beautiful. God's plan, God's ways. And why do we need to hear all this? Like, why go through all the pain of telling us all of these things in the book of Hebrews, all of these details, all of this stuff about dimensions and blood and sacrifice and priests? Why? So that when we read this book, we will have confidence to know that our sins have really been dealt with, that we don't need to doubt. We don't need to wonder if we're still carrying around our sinfulness with us but that our perfect high priest has, as the end of chapter 7, offered up himself. He didn't offer up some goat. He offered up himself. Perfect priest, perfect sacrifice, in a perfect temple where he offered up his blood. We're not sitting down here left holding the bag. And sometimes maybe you feel like that. We talked about this a little bit last week. Maybe there is this particular kind of sin or failure in your life that you never can shake out of your mind. Maybe it's ongoing right now. You need to know that you have a perfect priest who offered up perfect blood. He presented it not in the copy of the Holy of Holies, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But he presented it in the hallways and throne room of heaven, the true place. He presented his blood to God, and it cleanses of all sin. Yes, even the ones that you'd rather not think of, buried in the back of your mind. Perfect forgiveness for a sinner like yourself. This is good news. God has provided for us. He's provided. And it washes us clean. It restores us. It takes this guilty sinner that I am. He calls me holy now, whether I feel like it or not. I understand that I'm a work in progress. You're a work in progress He's changing us from one degree of glory to the next as we see Jesus. But in the hallways of heaven, 
up there. It's as if we are already seated with Jesus. We're clean. We're perfect. We're pure. Do you believe that? And it is because you have him as your priest. Through no work of your own, through nothing that you have done, he offered up his blood. By faith, we look to him and receive what is his. He took ours on himself. He took sin and unrighteousness on himself there at the cross. And the great exchange, he hands over his righteousness to sinners. And God declares that Mel Lefebvre is clean. And Mel understands that he's still a work in progress here, but he knows what God says about him now. And this sets us free to not live under guilt, to not be weighed down with burdens, to not be enslaved in prison anymore. We're set free. All because of what Christ has done for us. We don't get what we deserve God delights to give sinners what they don't deserve through the blood of Christ. And so we need to hear this so that we can have confidence that before the throne of God that I am loved and delighted in and made holy and pure, I'm spotless. Man, don't we need to hear that? We need to think about these things more often, I'm sure, that we need a priest like this. And do you ever, how often do you think about the people that you know that need a priest like this? How aware of you are you, uh, how aware are you of your sin? How often does it come to your attention? How often do you think about God's holiness? And the perfect plan that he had that he tells us about here to deliver us from his own wrath. Again, that's not very good modern language, is it? The wrath of God, judgment of God. But God's righteousness requires that wrath is poured out on all that opposes him. He would not be holy and he would not be just if punishment was not given for sin. And so if sinners get away, if sinners get away with their sin being dealt with, God is unjust. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 3. This is the problem. Sinners are out there. It looks like they're getting away with their sin. What's God going to do about it? Because if he doesn't do something about it, he is an unjust God. He has no justice in him. He's not really holy. He's not righteousness. He's stained in a way. This is his world. He made this place. And everybody's accountable to him. What will he do? It'd be like having a legal system that never punishes criminals. And maybe you think that's the way the legal system is anyway. The threat is there, but nothing ever happens. Parents who won't discipline their kids, oh, I'm going to get you next time you do that, and it just never happens. 
True justice requires that evil is dealt with. Otherwise, that legal system is not just and good. And so sin, in the same way, cannot go on forever without truly being dealt with. Otherwise, God, the creator of the universe, the king of this world, he is not just and he is not good. But Jesus came to prove that God is both. He is just. He is good. Jesus came to settle all accounts. At his first coming, he paid for the sins of all who believe. He paid for those sins at the cross. At his second coming, he will judge the sins of all who reject him. All accounts will be settled and closed by the comings of Jesus Christ. Either your sins will have been paid for by the blood of Christ when God poured out wrath and gave justice on the back of Jesus. We understand in that? Either your sin will have been dealt with at the cross or you will pay for your sin yourself. By believing in Christ, we are acknowledging our need for a Savior and that He took my sin when He paid for it up there on Calvary. That's why we sing about Calvary, because of the great work that Christ did on my behalf. He took what I deserve. He received a kind of hell up there for me and you. And if you believe that, your sin was paid for in full, and your account is settled by his blood. And when Jesus comes back, we're told, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, there's some scary language there. About when he comes back, God is going to pour out his wrath on all who rejected the Son. So either Jesus pays for your sins, or you pay for your sins eternally in a place called hell. So in that way, God will be demonstrated to be just. Everything is paid for in full. And so again, brothers and sisters, I understand that this is not language that's just out there being knocked around in public. But our minds, they need to be renewed by the word of God, not held enslaved by the words of the world. This is reality. These are the weightiest things in the world. We cannot deal with them in a trivial way. God did not do that. God dealt with them by the blood of his son. There's just nothing more serious or important in the world than this. Judgment is coming, we are told. And every man, woman, and child in this city, every man, woman, and child in your family needs to be told that. Why did John the Baptist and why did Jesus come, or come and preach things like flee from the wrath to come? People need to be told. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read it, Christian lived in a place called the City of Destruction. And he was told, you better get out of that place. 
And you better run and find shelter somewhere else. Because judgment is coming on the city of destruction. And he found shelter under his Savior, Jesus Christ. God's people will be hidden from his wrath in Jesus. The world, though, is a hush about these things. No one dares speak and call anything sin. You better not say that somebody else is doing something wrong out there. Oh, you'll get wrath, all right. All the talk is entertainment and money and war and politics and race and sex and sports. Sin is counted as nothing. And God is belittled and shown the door. Out this way, we have no need for you. And yet, what is our God like? He patiently, patiently calls more and more to repentance and faith. He gives mercy. His grace is more. His love is astounding. And we really should be astounded in some ways that God does not rain down fire upon this place, upon our country, upon our world, fire from heaven. Like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a picture of what was to come, by the way. Like it was a localized judgment that showed what would come for the whole world at the end. His wrath is on the way. And he will give it at some point, but until then, there is mercy there for those who see this, the one that we're reading here, this Savior, this priest, this King, in all of his beauty. It is there. Why would someone not come? Finally, the ministry that Jesus has, it gives us better promises this is verses 8 through 12. This is what he's talking about here in a better covenant, better promises that we've been given. This is the longest quotation in the Old Testament, of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it's from Jeremiah chapter 31, promising almost 600 years before the coming of Jesus that there will be a new covenant between God and his people. And he says in verse 9 that this new covenant will not be like the first covenant that I made with Israel when I led them out of Egypt. So he's saying there's going to be something better that is to come. It won't be like that first one. Because what happened with these people under that covenant? They died out there in the wilderness. They broke his covenant. So that first covenant did not secure a lasting people for God. It did not have that kind of power in it. But this new covenant, he says, will have that kind of power. It's a better promise. That old covenant was made up of laws and rules. And if you know anything about laws and rules, you understand that just by giving a law to people does not mean that they're going to keep it. That there's no power inherent in the word or in that law to make somebody do what it says. So just because I tell my child to clean her room does not mean that it's going to happen. Right? 
You give the command, it's not as if the power of the command fills the child, carries them up there to where they now will clean their room immediately. Doesn't work that way. She has no more power or ability to clean the room than before I told her to do so. Nor does she necessarily want to any more than she did before. It is just a command. It doesn't reach the heart and change the will of the person. It doesn't reach down into them and change anything. If anything, it actually kind of chafes them. I don't want to clean my room. They weren't even thinking about their room before until you said something. And now sin rises up on the inside and doesn't want to clean the room and now rebels against you. That's kind of messed up, isn't it? Well, that's what the law of God was. It just chafed frustrated, made angry sin. It poked it. But it didn't change the heart. And it didn't change the will. Just because God told people not to murder or commit adultery, it does not mean that their hearts were changed. It was an external rule. Where was it written at originally? Do you remember? It was written on tablets of stone. But what does he say here? What's he going to do in the new covenant that's better than the old? It says, I will put my laws not on tablets of stone. I will put them in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. Do you remember the first time the, the tablets were written? God wrote them on those tablets. That's incredible. He wrote them. Moses came down to the bottom of the mountain and smashed them. And when Moses went back up, Moses had to write them the second time. But that first time, God wrote them on those tablets. How did he do that? That's amazing. And what he says here, there's something better that's going to take place, that God would write his law on our hearts. It's going to be an inside job. It's going to do work inside of me. Inside the Spirit, by the Spirit. So God is going to place a new desire inside of us. He's going to reach inside the person's will and change that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit when that person believes the gospel. That's what it means to be born again. That's what he's describing there. New work in me, changing me, giving me new desires. And this is a much better promise. Much better promise than what was done under the old law under Moses. And we're told here that each, per, each person who belongs to this covenant will know the Lord. Do you see that, verse 11? Every person who belongs to this new, better covenant will have a true knowledge of God. His love, His mercy, His kindness, His grace. Under that old covenant, it was a mixed bag. Not every person really knew the Lord. It looked kind of like it on the outside. They were of the various tribes that made up the land of Israel. But not every person truly believed. So some of them still need to be instructed and told, know the Lord. You need to follow the Lord. Know him. He says it won't be like that under the new covenant because every person under this covenant will know the Lord. They'll know him personally. They'll walk with him because he will be in them. His spirit's on the inside. There in the Old Testament under that law of Moses, God was in the tabernacle. He was in their midst, all right. This is, this is so. He was in their midst. 
They knew where he was. He was in that tent. His glory was in there. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. God was there with them. But under the new covenant, where is he? He's not out there somewhere. He's in here. His glory, his spirit, something of him is in me and inside of you. Man, that is good stuff. A lot better than the old one. Where only Moses kind of had access to the tent of meeting and met with God. No, each one of us will know the Lord on the inside. Oh. Well, that's better. That's a better promise under a better covenant. All because Jesus came to deal with our sins. We have access to promises like that. And this covenant is written in his blood. That's how covenants were made. They were made in blood. Did you give any of your blood for this covenant? Not a drop. Jesus paid for it all. And because of that, God can say there in verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Again, so much better than that first covenant where those sacrifices had to be offered day after day and year after year. Now, once for all, my sins are washed clean. God won't remember them anymore. He won't hold them against me anymore. That old covenant was never meant to make men perfect. It was meant to serve as a shadow for the coming covenant that could make men perfect. And it would be given by the perfect priest whose name is Jesus. This is our summary for today. Just one sentence. I hope that we'll at least capture something of what we have in Christ. Jesus is a better priest serving in a better place, providing better promises. That's what we're told. That's where our confidence comes from. He's a better priest. He's in a better place, perfect temple, providing better promises, new covenant. That's what Jesus is. Three quick points to close. We'll be done. This application. First point of application is that this is the weightiest, most important truth in the world. There's nothing more important than this. And I know there are times in your life, just like there are in mine, where it doesn't feel that way. Like, it just doesn't feel that way. This, some of this talk seems foreign at times. But this is the most important truth in the world, and our minds need to be renewed to think that way, not like the world. The world tells us out there what's important, what you should think on, what you should read on. Does it not? Always sending suggestions to you on what you need to be upset about today. The new thing to be frustrated by. I've got a group of guys that I meet with, and it does seem like I listen to some of those things, and I show up, I'm a little bit frustrated and angry because I've been dwelling on the things the world is telling me is important. But my mind needs to be renewed to think like this. What has God done for me? It's all grace. It's all kindness. It's all mercy. That's where I dwell. 
The most important thing is not the big game tonight. Arnie already told us that. This is the most important hour that we have because we're looking at God's Word. The rest of the world, though, will celebrate. There's nothing better than the act of entertainment that's given in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl halftime show and all that. Gosh. It's meaningless. It's vanity. It's passing away. This is more important than any political news that's going to come this week. You are going to get upset sometime this week over something that you see. And all of a sudden, it's going to be the most important thing in your life. No, it's not. It's not. I can guarantee you that this is more important than who the bills draft in a couple of months. In that moment, though, it'll seem so important to you. It's more important than what New York does about gas stoves. Have you gotten upset about that one yet? I have. Who are they to tell me I can't have a gas stove in my house? What's the matter with these people? Right? I get upset about things like that. Government telling me what I can and cannot cook with. And I want to talk to other people about what I can and cannot cook with. And all those things will enter our minds, and we will watch the game tonight, many of us. But this truth right here, that we have a priest who has dealt with our sins, finally, perfectly, completely, washing me, promising me a place where he currently is right now. This world is broken. We should expect it to do broken things. Broken people are running this world, it seems. But over and above that is King Jesus, who is in heaven. And he says, do not worry, I will come for you. But the sin that's still inside of me is prone to worry. And my heart is prone to wander. And I need a reminder like this. This is what I have. Perfection where Jesus is. Number two. Don't take your sin lightly. Don't take your sin lightly. God did not take your sin lightly. There's too much of this in the church of Jesus Christ, playing footsie with sin, or actually like already in bed with it, and counting it as nothing or small or something that can be trifled with because we have such a gracious God Man, if you're under the blood of Christ in the new covenant, you have been given the Spirit of God. And does the Spirit of God delight in sin or does he convict of it? And so if you are sheltering sin, if you are giving it a place to hide, you know, you're hugging it, giving it a place to grow, making excuses for it, why it's there, Oh, it's only a little one. It's barely got roots that have gone down just yet. It's not bloomed fully. Can you see here what God planned and what Jesus went through to cleanse you of your sin? And if you can, how can you possibly want to protect and nurture what Jesus died for? That's why he said things like, 
If your eye sins against you, cut it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. And what he's talking about there is that if you understand sin for what it really is and the destruction that it causes in your life, you will go through extreme measures to get rid of it. You won't hang on to it. It will look as extreme in some people's lives like you have cut off your eye. Like how would you possibly not want to go and do what all these other people are going to do? Because it leads me to sin. I will not go there. I will not be around that. I will not watch that. I will not put my eyes on that on my phone. That will destroy my soul. How could I? Jesus gave his life for such things. Do not take sin lightly. You see here how God dealt with your sin. Oh. Lastly, give thanks. We should just be an amazed people. What kind of God is this who would love a sinner like me? That should go through our minds. What kind of God is this? He's amazing. Who would chase me down. That's what he did. God chased me down and subdued me by his grace. I was not running toward him. Maybe it seems like that in your life. You're running toward him. No. You're running from him. And God chased you down like a bloodhound, found you, poured grace on you, brought your heart to a place where it would receive him. And you did. He secured you. He bagged you. That's exactly what he did. He's a good hunter and he does not miss. That's what he did. And brought our souls into communion with him, promising us a place that we do not deserve. He did that. Man, we should be amazed. I know where I tend, though. I see all the good in me, self-sufficiency in me. And I think in some ways, in the back of my mind, I wouldn't say it out loud except right here to you, I guess. Like I deserve it or something. But if I see myself rightly and scripture is reading my heart the way that it really is and showing me who I am and showing me who God is, I will be amazed at what God has done in my life. I was far from him and delighted in things that opposed him. I was an enemy of God until I wasn't. And the only thing that explains it is God's grace. At some point, the gospel went into my ears and God drove it like a stake down into my heart and killed that old man and breathed spirit into me and raised me up from the dead. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, that's exactly what happened to you. He subdued you by grace. And now we live forevermore to give him praise. So give thanks for a God like this, for a Savior like this, for a priest like this, for a place that is promised to us like this, for a new covenant like this. This is the extent that God was willing to go through to bring you to him. Let's praise him together.
At this time, if the worship team would come forward, they're going to lead us in one more song before we're done. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we cannot thank you enough for Jesus. We do not deserve these promises. You delight to give them. Lead us, God, today just to look at our Savior, to see all that he is for us, the perfect priest that was planned before time ever began that we would have, according to the line of Melchizedek, a priest who offered up himself. He is the sacrifice too. Offered up himself at the cross. And he has now entered the gates of heaven. And we rejoice that he is there, that he looks down upon us. Strengthen our faith, Lord Jesus, to live in this world for you. And we thank you that you have promised that we someday will be there with you in this perfect place. Not a broken world that we're in right now. All of creation is groaning to be renewed. We groan too. Thank you, Lord, that these promises are true. And that you've written your word upon our hearts and placed a new desire, a new will inside of us. You've given us a new want to in life. We want to be pleasing to our Savior. We pray that even in this moment when we close our time of worship together, when we sing, He is, He is everything to us. May we see that as we sing. And that we will sing with words of understanding. And we ask it in Jesus' name.